Welcome to People Who Wrote Books, a podcast about people who wrote books. I'm your host, Andrea, and I am going to tell you the stories of some of my personal favorite authors. Now, like 20-ish years ago, my niece Tatiana was in elementary school, and she was doing a report on Nellie Bly. Now, I had not heard of Nellie at that point, so I decided to go to the library to find some of her books or like books about her. Now, yes, I probably could have looked it up online, but it's the college library and the stacks are amazing, and I went there every chance I had. So I was up on one of the upper floors and standing at the computer where you're looking up the books, the card catalog on a computer, and the elevator doors open behind me. Now, at this point, I do have to note that the Dalai Lama's brother was a professor at Indiana University, and he had founded the Tibetan Cultural Center in Bloomington in 1979. So it was not uncommon for the Dalai Lama to be on campus, but I was not expecting that when the elevator opened, it would be full of a group of monks and the Dalai Lama himself. So now I'm standing there and I have no idea how to properly address him and I don't wanna be disrespectful. So I completely panicked and just stared at the computer and pretended that I didn't notice this group walking behind me. And this has nothing to do with Nellie Bly, but it's just the experience that I think about every time I think about Nellie. Anyway, today's episode is about Nellie Bly. Elizabeth Jane Cochran was born on May 5th, 1864 in Pennsylvania, and she was born on the outskirts of Pittsburgh in a mill town that belonged to her father. So her dad, Michael, he ran the mill and the town. He was the postmaster, the merchant, and the town justice. And Elizabeth's mother, Mary Jane, was Michael's second wife. So he had 10 children with his first wife, and then five more with Mary Jane, making Elizabeth number 13 out of 15. Michael, her dad, passed away in 1871 when Elizabeth was only seven. And just a side note, I have seen some places that claim he died in 1870 when she was six, but I found his grave on findagrave.com and the stone says 1871, so I'm going with that date. So her father didn't have a will, so the family actually didn't get anything. And then Mary Jane, her mother, remarried and got a divorce in 1878 due to abuse. I wasn't even sure women were allowed to get a divorce at that time, so I looked it up, and the Married Women's Property Acts of 1848 did give women the ability to sue for divorce. So by 1878, Mary Jane could have, but to get a divorce on the grounds of abuse meant that she had to prove prove multiple instances of abuse, and it just had to be an absolutely horrible situation for Mary Jane to be granted this divorce. Now in 1879, when Elizabeth was 15, she enrolled in the state normal school in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which is now Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And her nickname prior to that had actually been pink because she wore that color so frequently. But when she went to school, she not only lost that nickname because she wanted to be a little bit more mature, I guess, But she decided to make her last name fancier by adding an E to the end. I don't know how that made it fancier, but apparently that's what Pink wanted. She only stayed at school for a year before she had to leave, unfortunately, due to financial issues. So then at 16, um, Elizabeth moved with her mother to Pittsburgh. 
Now Elizabeth is in Pittsburgh and she is having trouble finding work as a woman. Then in 1885, the Pittsburgh Dispatch published an article titled, What Girls Are Good For? And it was the stuff you would expect. They were claiming, you know, women are good for making babies and keeping house and that's it. And Elizabeth, who is trying to find work and absolutely fed up with this sexist narrative that has been holding her back, decided to write a response. Now, I wanted to find this response letter, so I went to the two digital newspaper archives that I have access to, and the Pittsburgh Dispatch only goes back to 1889 digitally, and I needed 1885. So I did just, you know, a normal Google search. I did find an article of hers titled The Girl Puzzle, and some sources say this was her response letter, and some say it was the first article after she was hired. But I also found in that search something very cool. There is a public art installation on Roosevelt Island in New York that is dedicated to Nellie Bly, and it is called The Girl Puzzle. And the artist, Amanda Matthews, she did her research, and she cites The Girl Puzzle as the response to the letter, and even says that it was published on January 25th, 1885. So with that information, I do think that this was her response letter to that initial article. So on January 25th, 1885, Elizabeth wrote the girl puzzle and signed it as lonely orphan girl. I don't know why she used that as her name since her mother was still living, but that's, that's what she chose. That's what she did. In this letter, she talks about giving women equal opportunities and her letter ends with, and I quote, instead of gathering up the real smart young men, Gather up the real smart girls, pull them out of the mire, give them a shove up the ladder of life and be amply repaid both by their success and unforgetfulness of those that held out the helping hand. So this was a good letter and uh, it caught the attention of the dispatch, the newspaper's editor, George Madden. So he published an advertisement asking to meet the author. And then after he did, he offered Elizabeth a job. So she did continue to use the name Lonely Orphan Girl for her first few articles, but George was like, yeah, I think we can do better than that. So she decided to change it to Nellie Bly. And Nellie Bly was actually a popular song at the time. Of course, I had to look up the song. It was written by Stephen Foster, who was kind of a big deal during those years. And I will spare you my singing, but the chorus is a catchy little, hi, Nelly, ho, Nelly, listen, love to me. It's, it's cute. You should look it up. She started at the dispatch writing about the lives of working women, but then the factory owners didn't like it. <laughs> surprise, surprise. They didn't want people critical of their horrible working conditions. And the dispatch decided that it was better to make Nellie write about things like fashion and gardening than to upset these factory owners. And Nellie wasn't okay with that. So she decided to try something else. And she went to Mexico for a while and wrote stories about Mexican culture that she then submitted to the newspaper. And these articles were later compiled into a book appropriately called Six Months in Mexico. Now, at this point, she is 21 and she's really ready to do more. So she decides to do what every journalist of the time was doing and move to New York City. So once again, as a woman, she has trouble finding work. 
1887. She's 21. She decides to walk right into Joseph Pulitzer's office and demand a job. Now, Joseph was the editor of the New York World, which was one of the most prominent newspapers at the time. And yes, he is that Pulitzer, the Pulitzer Prize that recognizes achievements in literature, poetry, history, music, and drama is named after this guy. Now, Pulitzer offers Elizabeth, Nellie Bly, an assignment. He wants an expose on New York's women's lunatic asylum that's out on Blackwell's Island. Uh, Side note, Blackwell's Island is now Roosevelt Island, which is where you will find the Girl Puzzle Monument that I mentioned earlier. Pretty cool, right? Now, Nellie decided that the best way to get the story would be to fake a mental illness so that she was admitted into the asylum. So she checked into a boarding house and began her insane act that she had been practicing. So then the boarding house called the police. She was examined by doctors who declared her insane and admitted her to the asylum. As soon as she was in, she dropped the act, but they didn't care. Uh, She was not able to get out. She actually spent 10 days in the asylum until the newspaper was able to get her released. So I am going to share one quote from Nellie's writings on this experience that I think really sums it up. And I quote, the insane asylum on Blackwell's Island is a human rat trap. It is easy to get into, but once there, it is impossible to get out, end quote. Her articles were published in the New York world and then published as a book in 1887. And her writing did make a difference. The Department of Public Charities and Corrections increased the budget for the facility and examinations. That whole process was improved to prevent this kind of stuff from happening. The asylum remained there until 1894, and then it became a hospital, and it was a hospital until 1955. At that point, the building just sat there and went into disrepair. And then in the early 2000s, the entrance, which was this really cool octagon building and the only part of the original structure that had not crumbled, they restored that part and made it into a lobby for some new apartment buildings. So it's not exactly the same building, but you can kind of live there today in an apartment. At this point in time, Nellie is a big deal. She has basically invented investigative journalism and continued to write expose articles for the New York world. And now she reads Jules Verne's book, around the world in 80 days. And it was published in 1872. So it was still a fairly new book. And she decided that it would be really cool to see if this fictitious route that was taken by the character Phileas Fogg could actually be accomplished. Nellie departed for her trip around the world on November 14th, 1889. And the New York world made a big deal out of this. They started a Nellie Bly guessing match so people could guess the exact time when she would arrive at her stops. And I absolutely love that one of her stops was to meet Jules Verne himself. Really cool. Now, Nellie managed to complete this trip in 72 days, six hours and 11 minutes. She was greeted when she arrived back home by 15,000 people at the train station and this huge celebration that even included cannons. The book was, of course, published and a board game was even created about her trip. 
So now at this point, she decided to pause on journalism and just start writing books, writing novels. And she actually wrote 12 novels between 1889 and 1895. Yeah, 12 novels in six years. Her first nonfiction book is titled Ava the Adventuress. And it was actually inspired by the headlines at the time about Ava Hamilton. And yes, she is, well, not she's associated with Alexander. She was the wife of Alexander Hamilton's great-grandson. And this is a total tangent, but fascinating. So apparently, Ava Hamilton was this the mistress of Robert Hamilton, the great-grandson of Alexander. And then she either became pregnant or possibly purchased a baby to convince him that she was pregnant pregnant or had his baby. I'm not quite sure. It's fascinating. I'm ordering the book right now. And also I do want to mention that I am able to order that book right now. Thanks to a man named David Blixt, who discovered these books again, just a couple of years ago. So these books had not been read since really they were published the first time, like over a hundred years ago, and now they're available again. So super cool. Now in 1895, she's 31 years old and she met this man named Robert Seaman at a dinner. And two weeks later, they got married. It was kind of a surprise to everyone. He was a bit older than her. She was 31. He was 73. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. And Robert was actually a millionaire who owned the Ironclad Manufacturing Company and American Steel Barrel Company. After the wedding, Nellie stopped writing. They were actually married until he died in 1904. And everything I found said that this was a very happy marriage. And when Robert died, Nellie, well, Elizabeth, took over the company. And thanks to all of her work as a journalist, she prioritized the well-being of the employees. She also invented some things during this time, including the steel milk can. So pretty cool. Unfortunately, she was not business savvy. She was a journalist. She was obvious. She was apparently also an inventor, but she fell victim to a fraud and had to close the business due to bankruptcy in 1914. Now she did begin writing again. And during World War One, she actually became America's first female war correspondent. She was on the front lines writing articles. And then Elizabeth Cochran Seaman passed away on January 27th, 1922 of pneumonia at the age of 57. And this incredible, talented, courageous woman died penniless. And she was buried in an unmarked pauper's grave in Woodland Cemetery. And I just can't understand this. I... People knew who she was. There were articles at the time of her death that were talking about her accomplishments. I just don't understand why no one stood up and said, hey, this woman deserves more. I don't understand. But thankfully, 56 years later, in 1978, the New York Press Club formally recognized her and erected a monument on her unmarked grave in Woodland Cemetery. Finally. I hope you enjoy learning a little bit about Elizabeth Cochran slash Nellie Bly. And remember, behind every great book is a person who wrote it. And this person just happened to create an entire new form of journalism.